Hi, welcome to Naked Genetics. I'm Phil Sansom. One of the biggest tech booms of the past half decade has been these consumer DNA tests. You've probably done one yourself, or at least know multiple people who have, from companies like 23andMe, Ancestry, or MyHeritage. Their different tests cover different things, but most of them promise to reveal the secrets of your family history, usually the ethnic origin of your ancestors, or the identity of a long-lost cousin. And very often, they work really, really well. The results come in the post, and with them come both answers and new questions. Questions that thousands, tens of thousands of people now have to figure out how to ask. Questions like, why does this piece of paper say I have a half-sister my parents never mentioned? Why, when I come from a proud Irish family, does my heritage track directly to Ashkenazi Jews? And how do I choose between the man I grew up loving and this stranger who now shares my genes, who to call my father? These are questions that journalist Libby Copeland has been thinking about a lot. In her new book, The Lost Family, she traces the butterfly effects of these genetic tests on both a societal and an intimate level. It's quite a read. I sat down with her to ask about this social phenomenon, and for the rest of the program, I want to play you that interview in full. Here's Libby. I first started exploring the concept of DNA testing and its popularity and its sometimes unexpected results when I wrote a feature story for the Washington Post. After that piece ran, I started getting emails, so many emails that I couldn't keep up with them, um, ultimately over 400 emails from readers who wanted to tell me their own DNA testing stories. You know, I tested and this is what happened. I tested and I discovered this astonishing thing. And as I was reading these responses, I thought, man, this is an American phenomenon. This is potentially a global phenomenon. This is a sociological phenomenon. This is a book. What sort of things were people saying? There's just so many ways in which DNA testing can play out for people. I mean, obviously, for many people, they're looking for some access to family history. And in many cases, that's just what they get. People are very curious where they came from. They often don't know other than a vague sort of, oh, I think I'm Irish or I think I'm Italian. And so they, they kind of want to get a little bit more granular. They want to see what else they can find out. Where in Ireland might I be from? Could I figure out who my great-grandparents were? That sort of thing. So in many cases, that's sort of like the standard thing that you discover. And the companies that market these tests, companies like Ancestry and 23andMe, they really play up this notion that you're going to discover your roots and you're going to get this pie chart. And it's going to tell you that you're 27% this and, you know, 15% that. Um, and that's very exciting. But very often there are things that people don't expect. You know, they're buying these often on a lark or they're giving them as gifts. They're very popular Thanksgiving and Christmas gifts here. And what they wind up finding is something that they never were looking for. So they'll discover, for instance, um, the most common kind of significant unexpected result is that you discover that the man who raised you, who you think of as your father, is not genetically related to you. Or you might discover that you have a half-sibling you didn't know existed. Or you might discover that somebody you thought of as a full sibling is a half-sibling. There are many cases where people discover that they were donor-conceived, so conceived by a sperm donation. Or perhaps they discover that they're one of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, even more than 100 half-siblings. 
In some cases, they might discover they're adopted. Now, most people set out knowing that they're adopted because that information is typically disclosed. But for some older adoptees, they might not know. In other cases, they set out looking for their birth families. Adoptees set out looking for them, and they're able to easily find them because the size of the databases makes that just incredibly easy at this point to very quickly find, say, a first or second cousin who allows you to unravel the identity of your genetic kin. And is it DNA testing that's changing this in a big way? DNA testing is extremely accurate when it comes to predictions of genetic relationships. So are you my relative? Now, it can't necessarily tell you precisely what the relationship is, but it can tell you a range of genetic overlap. Basically, you and I share certain identical segments, and that can predict the level of relationship. So for instance, a half-sibling relationship looks really different from a third-cousin relationship. And that's a very close relationship, a sibling relationship, a parent-child relationship, a first-cousin relationship. All those things are so close that they can help you unravel more tendrils of information. And that simply does not come out wrong for people, right? You don't get a prediction that someone's your brother and they're actually just a genetic stranger to you or a fourth cousin. So that stuff is really accurate. The ethnicity estimates, which are very popular in the United States, where you get a little pie chart that tells you you're a certain percentage this and a certain percentage that, those are a little bit more nuanced and can vary from company to company because they are um, what the companies like to call an evolving science. What you're yeah. saying, it sounds like, is that when you're connecting two people, DNA is pretty good at that. Yeah, DNA is amazing at that. <laughs> it really is. What's the effect on people when they have this kind of revelation? And what's the effect on, you know, lots of people when lots of people start having this kind of revelation? That's what I wanted to discover in my book. And I really think that this is going to be studied as a sociological phenomenon in decades to come, because I think this is the moment when everything changed, when all of a sudden we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that sometimes we weren't told the whole truth about who we were or about the past. It, it's very complicated, and it depends on the person. You know, some people go through a process of grieving for the families that they didn't get to spend time with because they did not know they were related to them. Some people go through a process of wrestling with, well, if this man's my genetic father and this man raised me, what does that mean? And the conclusions that they come to are often quite nuanced and beautiful. You know, they'll say, well, the man who raised me is my father, and this man is also something to me. <laughs> this man who's genetically my father is also important to me. So they often take perhaps a whole lifetime to wrestle with that. It's not simple to go for 50 years thinking that, you know, you came from these two people and you are this thing in terms of your ancestral history and then discover that, say, 50% of what you thought is not the case, at least as far as genetics is concerned. And that's something that people wrestle with. They feel sometimes guilt, they feel anger, they feel bittersweetness, they feel joy. In fact, in the United States, there's a number of psychologists who've begun to specialize in what it looks like when a person discovers an unexpected uh, result by DNA testing and how they, what the, basically the process, the emotional process that they have to go through in order to understand that and make peace with that. 
So it's incredibly complex. You had a great quote about this in one of your early chapters. You said, we human beings are the meaning makers, each of us a product of a particular time and place, with ideas about what we value and indeed what we hope to find when we look. That really struck me. What did you mean by that? I think when I wrote that, I was thinking about the history of genetics research and how tied up it is with eugenics and the way that we can interpret bits of scientific information, but we are not objective. We're subjective storytellers. So, you know, I found this throughout the book and quite apart from that facet of the early history of genetics, which is that we are all subjective in terms of how we interpret the scientific information that comes to us from DNA testing. So for instance, I am half Ashkenazi Jewish through my mother, but I identify very strongly with that and less so with my dad's ancestral history, which is British and German and Swedish. And I don't think that we're foolish or wrong to be subjective in our interpretations of what certain cultural things mean to us. If you're raised with, say, Sicilian heritage, that might speak to you far more than, say, your father's heritage, which might be uh, Japanese, for instance. So the point I was trying to make in that section and throughout the book is that when it comes to understanding what am I ethnically, or what is a father, or what is a sibling, all of these relationships and these kind of sources of meaning are things that we have to discover for ourselves. We find our own language for them. We find our own labels for them. We get to decide um, what's a father, what's a sibling, what does it mean to be this ethnicity or that, and we apply our own kind of perspective to that journey. In that context, is DNA even relevant in and of itself? It is and it isn't, right? So I think the danger that people worry about is that we'll think about the process of discovering one's genetic identity in a kind of binary way, right? So I thought I was this, now I know that I'm that. There's a great ancestry DNA ad that they run here in the States that <laughs> it shows this guy discovering he's one thing instead of the other, and he's basically like throws away his kilt and puts on his later hosen. <laughs> it's that kind of like, well, goodbye to all that. And of course, of course, that's troubling. But I think the reality is like, for most people, it's not binary. And yes, it is meaningful to discover that because it's another layer of identity, right? Like, I was telling you earlier that I identify very strongly with my mother's ethnicity. Well, part of the process of DNA testing has been discovering my father's side. And um, in the fall, we went to Sweden, and we were able to meet my dad's second cousin, which is access to the past and to really my family's past that we would not have had without DNA testing because we found these cousins through the databases, which is pretty amazing. But it's not as if I say, well, now I'm all Swedish, <laughs> right? Like yeah. it's a yes and situation. It's like, yes, this is true and also that. So for somebody who discovers, for instance, that the man who raised them, that man is not their genetic father, in many instances, the people I interviewed would say, well, this man, he is still in my heart. He's still my father. I have that relationship with him if they started out with a close relationship. And now I also have this other man in my life who is, say, for instance, 
in this imaginary scenario, my donor father, right? And I have a relationship with him, but he does not supplant my father. He does not take over for my father. My father's still my father. So, you know, it's not as if we dismiss everything that came before, but it's also not meaningless. It's incredibly meaningful to people to know their true sort of ancestral histories and genetic identities. And I have to say, you know, the vast majority of people who discovered something surprising, even troubling in their DNA results, told me that they were glad to know. Because even if that truth was hard to reconcile with, there's a value in simply knowing the truth. And what was it like for you to find your Swedish family? It was astonishing. You know, I mean, it, it's... I have never been able to feel that the past is so present to me. And I don't know if this is different in the UK and in Europe, where people, I think, probably grow up with a better sense of their ancestral roots, a better sense of kind of access to the past. Particularly if you sort of stay in the same geographical area, you might like know what your roots are going back. But here in the States where people tend to be made up of lots of people from lots of different countries, right? Lots of different immigrants from lots of different places, we tend to feel somewhat cut off. And so to be able to say like, we were able to go there and actually see the grounds of the farmhouse where my dad's grandmother lived before she emigrated. That was an incredible gift to me. I suppose that also has particular relevance for a lot of African Americans in the US yeah, who were brought over as slaves and don't have any link that they know of to, you know, maybe even two, three generations back. Absolutely. I mean, that that's actually something that a number of folks who I interviewed for the book talk about, you know, is this ability to kind of get around the limitations of the fact that their um, ancestors were brought over in chains and completely cut off from their roots. And the commercial DNA testing companies historically have not been super awesome about certain kinds of ancestry. So they tend to specialize in European white ancestry. And that tends to be what they're better at, in part because those are the people who are mainly in the databases and buying the tests, and in part for historical reasons. But certain companies have been working on improving their results. For instance, one man that I interviewed talked about how he was able to really get down to a granular level in terms of understanding the particular people that he had come from along one of his sides. And he said that this was an absolutely profound thing for him, that there was no paper trail for him. There was no way for him to achieve this by trying to look back at records. But through the DNA, and as the process has evolved and gotten better over the years, he's certainly been able to get more granular results. Through the DNA, he could get incredibly precise about this one particular branch of his family. And he was just sort of astonished and really touched by this. Now, like you say, a lot of people have that reaction. But I was surprised to learn from your book that for genealogy alone, DNA testing is absolutely enormous. And there's so much money and so many corporations involved. Yeah. There. In fact, testing for ancestry is historically been more important than testing for health at least in the US, that has been the thing that has been selling the kits. And so the ads that the companies have run, so the major companies in the US are Ancestry, which offers an Ancestry DNA kit. 
and 23andMe. And then there's also MyHeritage DNA and another company, Family Tree DNA. If you look at the ads that they have been running, they're entirely about discovering your roots here in the US. The shift to health testing, that's a much more recent move. And basically what's happened is that they have essentially, the experts say, vacuumed up all the early adopters in the United States. So all the people who would test for ancestry purposes, who are ready, willing, and able to plunk down $99 to find out their roots, those people are all basically already in the databases and they tested for that reason primarily. And now the companies are starting to shift towards health results because they're hoping to offer more to people who didn't already test for ancestry purposes. But yes, in the United States, ancestry has absolutely been the driving force behind commercial DNA testing. And where's that going to lead? Well, it's interesting now because there has been in the last six to 10 months, a slowdown in kit sales here in the US. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, as I mentioned before, there's the fact that the companies have basically already gotten all the early adopters who were interested in ancestry and family history to test. And so they've found that that's slowing down as a result. There's also some thinking, and the co-founder of 23andMe and Wojcicki talks about this, that there is concerns about privacy here in the US. And privacy can mean a lot of different things. But basically, that slowdown means that it's a little bit unclear where things are going. I think ultimately the databases will continue to grow and that's what's behind the pivot towards health testing and testing for disease risk and traits and things like that that several of the big companies have recently turned to. They're gonna keep growing their databases but they're gonna do so with an emphasis on, they say, eventually being able to predict your risk for certain health conditions, for example. And they haven't really been able to deliver on that quite yet to the extent that I think some consumers would hope. But I think over the next few decades, that's we're going to start seeing that happening more and more. And do you think everyone's going to be DNA tested, maybe just in the US, but after a certain amount of time, and there'll be a big family tree of close to everybody? Yeah, I, I think that whether or not it's everyone, although there are some people think that there's going to be a time when all newborns will be sequenced at birth, basically in developed countries, full stop. But that's sort of a theoretical thing that could be coming down the road, but we'll put that to the side, right? Mm. So at the moment, there's anywhere from 35 to 40 million people in these commercial DNA databases, the vast majority of them American, and then also folks from the UK, from Australia, from Canada. I do think they're going to continue to grow. And I think that the point is that even if they never encompass every single person, it's almost as if everyone is opted in in any case, which is to say that if you have a genetic family secret within your clan, that's going to be discovered. Because even if you never test, it sort of doesn't matter anymore. We've reached a saturation point where anyone is discoverable by DNA, even if they never test. So for instance, if a man helped conceive a child 40 years ago, and he declines to test, he can be found because his aunt tests or his child tests or his uh, sibling tests. And through the process of triangulation, it's relatively easy to discover his identity using uh, genealogical methods and social media. So I think we're heading towards the point where it's increasingly 
not a choice of whether to opt in or not opt in. You're effectively opted in by the decisions of others. And when it comes to families, you, in your book, describe a lot of people as seekers or becoming seekers when it comes to their own family history and genealogy. And the tagline of your book is how DNA testing is upending who we are. When you say it's upending who we are, are people becoming seekers or are we becoming people who eventually won't need to be seekers anymore? Maybe down the road. It's sort of hard for me to envision what that would look like, but eventually someday, none of this stuff will be a surprise anymore, right? And I can't tell you when that someday is. But right now we're in the process of discovery and that process is very disruptive to people's lives. So we're sort of in the place where we are learning that the past isn't always what we've been told it is. We're sort of in the place where we're learning that our families aren't always what we assumed they were. And that struggle, that process, that kind of emotional reckoning, that's in some way implicating all of us right now and making us all into seekers. Sort of, I think of this as like the decade that changes the American family in many ways. And do you think DNA is the catalyst or do you think DNA is like just something in the background? I think DNA is the catalyst, but DNA alone wouldn't do it. So in order to make a family discovery, in order to, let's say I'm searching for a half sibling, I heard rumors that I might have a half brother somewhere who's 10 years older and I need to figure out I'm going to now I'm an adult and I'm going to see if I can find him. I would start with commercial DNA testing. I'll spit into a tube or I'll swab my cheek. And that's the beginning. But in order to really figure out where he is, if he's not in the database and I'm looking for him, I would need other tools. So I need social media. I might need access to genealogical subscription services. I might need access to yearbooks <laughs> and things like that, right, online. It's this sort of interesting combination of the data that's out there that we all put out there right now. I mean, we all have Facebook accounts and we all have some presence online. It's the rare person who doesn't exist online. So we all live with these little breadcrumbs. So it's a combination of the DNA testing in concert with this ability to find people online, to research our family histories and also our present day families online. And those, those things together are creating this moment. Journalist Libby Copeland, whose book, The Lost Family, is available now. Finally, I wanted a different country's perspective. So I got in touch with Debbie Kennett, a genetic genealogist and researcher at University College London. She told me that the genealogical community is big in the UK as well as the US. The UK is less of a nation of immigrants than the USA, so us Brits are often in it to find out our family tree rather than where in the world we come from. When it comes to startling family revelations, the UK isn't as full of people finding out they're adopted because our Adoption Act of 1976 allows kids to see their own birth certificates when they turn 18. But there are still surprises, and many of them happy. Right now in 2020, we might be over the hill when it comes to direct-to-consumer tests. Sales have been declining. So time will tell whether the tests will just be standard in future, or we'll look back on them as a weird 2010s fad and move on. That's all for this month's Naked Genetics. If you've got a story about DNA testing you'd like to share, or a question for the show, pop me an email on phil at nakedscientist.com 
or find us on social media or go to nakedscientists.com slash question. I've been Phil Sansom, and thanks for listening.